Well, good morning. <clears throat> good to see you, and thank you for the sabbatical. Uh, it's really a, a gift uh, for myself, for my wife, for our family, to be able to get some time away to rest, uh, recalibrate. Comes at a really good time after the passing of my father. I just uh, we expect the Lord's going to do really good things there. We trust it will really be a blessing this church body. Uh, I've been reading. Um, a book from a pastor who recommends pastors go on sabbaticals, and he says, uh, my wife swears to me she's been married to four men named Pete, uh, and, and because he's had four sabbaticals, and every time he comes back, he's a, he's a different man. Uh, so we trust the Lord will do good things through this and good things for our body, but thank you for that. We'll share a little bit more next week. Uh, about this sabbatical, but really, really grateful. It's a tremendous blessing from the Lord. If you have a Bible, please turn to Nehemiah chapter 8. Nehemiah chapter 8. I've been preaching through the book of Nehemiah. We'll read the first eight verses of Nehemiah chapter 8, and let's stand if we can today to pray and read, and you'll know why in just a second. Well, Father, we thank you just for every opportunity to open your word. Lord God, we just ask for your help now. Father, we just trust that... Uh, you, the one who inspired this word, who breathed it out for our prophet, we just trust that uh, you, you care for us and, and, and you can help us uh, to see great things in your word. Father, we don't just need the Bible, we need you to do a work in our hearts so that we might um, actually uh, uh, see Jesus in the word we might benefit from the Word. So we would just ask, Father, that you'd give us new hearts, uh, those uh, that don't have a new heart yet. And uh, Lord, those of us who do, you just help to remove the slumber, the, the sleepiness in our hearts, Lord. And give us eyes to see this morning. Help us to see Jesus. And just help us here as we, we look at your Word now. We trust you will in the name of Jesus. Amen. Verse 1. And all the people gathered as one man into the square before the water gate. And they told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses that the Lord had commanded Israel. So Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, both men and women, and all who could understand what they heard on the first day of the seventh month. And he read from it facing the square before the water gate from early morning until midday in the presence of the men and women and those who could understand. And the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. And Ezra the scribe stood on a wooden platform that they had made for the purpose. And beside him stood Mattathiah, Shema, Aniah, Uriah, Hilkiah, and Messiah on his right hand. And Padiah, Mishael, Malkijah, Hashem, Hashbadanah, Zechariah, and Meshulam on his left hand. And Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was above all the people. And as he opened it, all the people stood. And Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people answered, Amen, Amen, lifting up their hands 
And they bowed their heads and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. Also Jeshua, Bani, Sherebiah, Jamin, Akub, Shabbatai, Hodiah, Messiah, Kalida, Azariah, Jazabad, Hanan, Peliah, the Levites, helped the people to understand the law. While the people remained in their places, they read from the book, from the law of God clearly, and they gave the sense so that the people understood the reading. Amen. You may be seated. Martin Lloyd-Jones, well-respected minister for years at Westminster Chapel in London, He once said this, Martin Lloyd-Jones, he said, I am profoundly convinced that the greatest need in the world today is revival in the church of God. Yet alas, the whole idea of revival seems to have become strange to so many good Christian people. This is due both to a serious misunderstanding of the scriptures and to woeful ignorance of of the history of the church. It's a powerful statement, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones. The greatest need in the world today is revival in the church. And yet he says the whole idea of revival has become strange to many Christians. A lot of believers today probably never even think about revival. Not, not even a word in their vocabulary. I don't know if you are a believer and if you've used the word revival lately. Most believers now don't use the word revival. Uh, uh, I think of the Christians who do use the word revival, I think many of them probably have no idea what a biblical revival actually is. A lot of people, I think they, they think a revival is just some old-fashioned evangelistic tent meetings. Uh, that's what they think down south uh, when I was there. Um, you want to have a revival, you just get your big tent, put it up, you schedule a bunch of meetings, you get a guest preacher, and you put it on your church billboard revival next week but a revival is not a bunch of scheduled meetings now what is a biblical revival the kind of revival Lloyd Jones was talking about well a biblical revival is when God simply brings new life to his people he revives his people he renews them he gives them a spiritual renewal of, of some sort. And God has done it a lot of times through history. When, when you read through the Bible, you, you find multiple places where God breathed new life into his people. He revived them. They had become complacent in their relationship with him. They had become complacent in, in their mission to the world. They, they, they were underneath a spiritual declension, a, a, a decline of some sort, spiritually apathetic. They were lazy. They were lethargic and, and God then did something to revive them. God God stirred them up. He he roused them. New life, a spiritual renewal. King David prays for revival in Psalm 119. Revive me, O God, according to your word. 
And he was saying there, I'm in some sort of spiritual decline here, Lord God. Slothful, lazy, slumbering, I need you to revive me. Stir my affections again for you and and for your mission in this world. On, On many occasions in the Bible, God revived his people. His spiritual renewal. And after the Bible was written in later history, well, God has revived his people on many other occasions. Many times in the past 2,000 years since the Bible was written, God has brought spiritual renewal to individuals or to towns or to entire countries like in the great awakening in america under the preaching of george whitfield and jonathan edwards god just reached god just produced a massive revival god 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 bringing new life a spiritual renewal to his people And Christians in the past would talk about revival. They would pray for revival. They would write books about revival. Like Jonathan Edwards' Religious Affections, a fantastic book about revival. Or William Sprague's Lectures on Revivals. And I would agree with Lloyd-Jones that the greatest need in our world today is revival in the church. And yet, most Christians, to them, revival has become a strange thing. We don't even think about it, or we're scared of it. And we desperately need it. A biblical revival. The church in America desperately needs a biblical revival. This church here desperately needs a biblical revival. We are complacent in some ways concerning God and his mission to this world. Every church is. We are lethargic in some ways. We are apathetic. We are entangled with the cares of this life. And we desperately need the Holy Spirit to revive us. To energize us, to stir our affections for Him and for His mission in this world. We need a spiritual renewal renewal from the Almighty God. We just desperately need it. I pray for it all the time as as a pastor of this church. A biblical revival. We're not going to have tent meetings. We're praying for a biblical revival. And man, in in this section of Nehemiah here that we have just entered, we see here what a biblical revival looks like. We see here several key elements that are involved in biblical revivals. We have now officially entered the second and final major section of the book of Nehemiah. The first section of this book was all about rebuilding a wall. Nehemiah and the other Jews finished, they just finished rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem, which were destroyed 150 years earlier when the Babylonians invaded Israel and took the Jews into exile. At the start of the book, Nehemiah came out of exile, and he and some other Jews then rebuilt the walls there in Jerusalem. They finished that building project right at the end of chapter 6. But listen, even though the walls in Jerusalem are now finished, Nehemiah's task in Jerusalem is not finished because Nehemiah did not return to Jerusalem just to rebuild the walls. No, Nehemiah also returned to Jerusalem to renew a people. 
And that is the second part of this this book. First, the rebuilding of the wall, but now the renewing of the people. The Jewish people at this time in history, even though these walls have just been rebuilt, the Jewish people are still a mess. You know, the Jewish people, they actually returned to the city of Jerusalem some 80 years before this. But they're still a mess. They don't know the laws of God that are written in the first part of the Bible. They're still struggling to reestablish worship in the temple. These people are a mess. And God is now going to use Nehemiah to renew or to revive his, his people. What we see now in the last chapters of Nehemiah, from chapter 8 all the way to the end, what we see is one of the great biblical revivals. God reviving his lethargic people. We see here several key elements that are present in in every biblical revival. And in this chapter, in chapter 8 here, we see one of the primary elements of any true biblical revival. And one of the true the, the primary elements of every single biblical revival is the word of God. In every true revival in history, the Bible has played a central role. And we can see it in this revival here in the city of Jerusalem. In this passage we're looking at today, man, we see three things that these people did concerning the Word of God. Three things that will spark a revival here. And the first thing these people did concerning the Word of God, number one, these people, they heard the Word. Verse 1 says that all the people now, they gathered as one man into the square before the water gate. So the gates have just been put up, this, the walls have just been built, and now the people all gather by the eastern gate of the city, the water gate, east side of the city, overlooking the Kidron Valley below the city. The people may have gathered just inside the city in a, a really large courtyard there, or the people might have gathered outside of the city wall in a courtyard there um, on the slope of the Kidron Valley there. And we read here in the first verse that a man named Ezra now appears. Ezra, he is the central figure in the book of Ezra in the Bible, a book that covers the events that took place just before the events in Nehemiah. Ezra is the central figure in the book of Ezra, and here Ezra now shows up in the book of Nehemiah. Ezra actually arrived in Jerusalem 13 years before Nehemiah did. So Ezra has actually been in the city the entire time that people have been building the walls, but this is the first time we've heard of Ezra in this book. Verses 1 and 2 say that Ezra was a priest and a scribe. So he had a priestly lineage. He actually came from the line of Aaron, Moses's brother. And as a scribe, Ezra had the responsibility of interpreting and teaching the Old Testament law. The first five books of your Bible, the the Torah that God had originally given to Moses on Mount Sinai, Ezra's responsibility was to teach the book 
of the law. The law of Moses. And Ezra will now take center stage in this book. Man, Nehemiah, this guy who's been front and center this whole book, Nehemiah is now going to recede to the background here in this book. His name will only be mentioned another four times in this book. Ezra is now center stage. Ezra, as a priest and scribe, he is the spiritual leader of these people, and Nehemiah knows it. Nehemiah was in charge of rebuilding the walls, but he now knows well enough to step back and let Ezra revive the people. Verse 2 says Ezra has the book of the law here. He steps up in front of these people at the water gate. So he has a scroll, or he has scrolls that contain the first five books of your Bible. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. That, that book of Moses, the book of the law. Verse 2 says that this crowd now in front of Ezra, the crowd was comprised of men, of women, and all who could understand what they heard. So that's probably a reference to some older children here. Those who could actually comprehend what Ezra was going to be saying here. You had the younger kids uh, off at a children's devotion maybe, but the older kids are here in front of Ezra. Commentators estimate that there was maybe a total of thirty to 50,000 people here. We just saw at the end of chapter 7, the number of people recorded in the genealogy in Jerusalem was 42,000. And those were mainly men. Now you have women, you have children here as well. Thirty to 50,000 people gathered here now around the water gate in the city of Jerusalem. And they were now going to hear the book of the law. And this was probably the very first time that many of them had ever heard the book of the law before. You just think about it. These people have recently come out of exile. And in exile, they didn't have massive gatherings where somebody read the book of the law to them. And in their homes there in exile, it wasn't like they all had scrolls on their shelves. <laughs> you just grab your cup of coffee in the morning, rip down your scroll, and just read the, the book of the law. No, the, the, the scrolls were rare back then. It is very likely that many of these some odd thousand people had never heard the book of the law read before. But they will now. And listen, this, this hearing of God's word here in this passage, this hearing of God's word, it will spark a revival in these people. In, in every genuine revival in history, one of the primary elements has been the hearing of God's word. That right there, that's what sparked the Reformation. Massive revival in, in, in many nations back in the 15, 1600s, the Reformation. It was sparked because people actually started hearing the Word of God for the first time. Before the Reformation, most Bibles were, were in Latin and many people 
didn't read Latin, and the Roman Catholic Church at that time would not allow the Bible to be translated into common languages. And the Roman Catholic Church also said that the Bible, it was dark and obscure, and it could only be interpreted by priests anyways, so even if you could read Latin, they wouldn't even allow lay people to possess a Bible. It was actually a decree of the Council of Toulouse. It says this, 1229. We prohibit also that the laity should be permitted to have the books of the Old or New Testament. But we most strictly forbid their having any translation of these books. It was the council of the church. You can't have the Old or New Testament in the Bible. You can't have the Bible. And you especially can't have a translation in your common language. So if you do have a Bible, it better be in Latin, which you cannot read. People at that time, they hadn't heard the Bible. But those early reformers, they came along and they believed that even the simplest person could understand the basic message of the Bible. The reformers talked about the perspicuity or the the clarity of the scriptures. And what they meant by perspicuity of the scriptures, what they meant was that the Bible, the meaning of the Bible was clear when it came to its central message. And even the simplest of people could understand the simple message of the Bible. So they started translating the Bible into common languages at the risk of their lives. Martin Luther, hidden in a castle in Wartburg, translated the New Testament into German in only 11 weeks. And Luther's Bible left an impression on a man named William Tyndale, who then produced, in hiding, an English translation of the New Testament, smuggled it into England. Tyndale was later arrested, charged with heresy for translating the Bible, and in 1536, burned at the stake. But the Bibles that Luther and Tyndale and others put into the hands of common people, when those people, those common people, finally heard the Word of God in their own languages, it ignited the Reformation. A massive revival. A spiritual renewal in many nations. And listen, If we want a spiritual revival in our church, if we want a spiritual renewal in our individual lives, if you want a spiritual renewal in your home, then we must also hear the Word of God. And not just hear it on Sunday mornings, but hear it from Sunday to Sunday in our personal lives. If you've never read the Bible before, man, that's okay. But I encourage you to start. I've met multiple people who've ended up rejecting Christianity with never ever cracking this and actually reading it. So I just encourage you, open it up and read it. If you have read the Bible before, let me encourage you this morning, read it some more. Are you, are you carving out time on a daily basis to actually sit down in a quiet place and read 
the Word of God. So you can hear it daily. Are you carving that out in your individual life? That is one of the most important things that you could do on this earth. One of the most important things you could do for yourself, for your spouse, for your kids, for the people sitting around you in here. Carve out that time and read the Bible. If you belong to a DNA group here, the Bible should, we, should be one of the primary elements of your DNA group. You should all be studying the Bible on your own and bringing what you learn into your meetings. If you want a revival, if we want a revival, a spiritual renewal here in our church, in our homes, in our individual lives, we must hear the Word of God. And please listen to me. Anything on this earth that people call revival that is not centered around the hearing of God's Word, it is not a biblical revival. It doesn't matter how happy it looks, how intense it looks, it does not matter. If it's not centered around the hearing of God's Word, it is not birthed by the Holy Spirit of God. That's one thing the people did here. Man, they heard the Word of God, and it will end up sparking a revival among them. And the second thing that they did here, they were attentive to the Word. They didn't just hear the Word No, they paid attention to it. You look at verse 3. And Ezra read from the book of the law, facing the square before the water gate from early morning until midday in the presence of the men and the women and those who could understand. And the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. And man, you you just stop and think (laughs) about what Nehemiah just told us right there. Listen, (laughs) this right here, this was not some 10-minute sermon. (laughs) Not at all. Man, for a lot of professing Christians in America today, that's about all that they can handle. A little sermonette for Christianettes. They'll sit and and watch two-hour movies all week long. But if you preach for 40 minutes, God forbid. It's like you just waterboarded them. It's absolute torture. These people listened to Ezra from morning until midday. Some six or seven hours. And please listen. Ezra was not preaching here some cute little topical message with lots of stories and jokes to keep people interested. This was straight Old Testament law for six or seven hours. And verse 3 says, the ears of all the people were attentive. Men, women, and most likely older children. Eager, eager to hear the Word of God. Listening closely, 
No texting. No dozing off. No looking at watches to give the signal to Ezra. (laughs) Hungry. 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 Hungry for the Word of God. Don't give me jokes. Don't give me stories if it's going to get in the way of the Word, Ezra. Give me the Word of God. Give me the law right now. Just preach the Word to me. Listen, we don't need dumbed-down sermons. We don't need sermonettes for Christianettes. Older kids, please please listen to me. You don't need silly little sermons for three-year-olds. We just need to learn how to listen. We need God to stir in our hearts a hunger for the Word of God. A hunger for the deeper things of God. Not all happy clappy all the time. But the deep things of of God. Our culture tells us every day that we need to be entertained 24-7. And if something's not entertaining, well, in a funny, immature sort of way, then it's no good. And we need to just grow up. That, that, that's ridiculous. We need God to create a hunger in us for deeper things. These people, man, they were hungry. God had stirred their hearts. They were hungry. They were hearing the word. They were hungry for the word of God. And man, you, you just think about this here. Attentive. Here they are, attentive. Their ears listening, attentive to Ezra. That attentive, attentiveness right there probably took some serious physical and mental exertion. I'm sure they had to work at it here to stay attentive. Now you think it's hard in here? It's distracting in here with the cinder block walls and the footprints on the wall and the noises at time when we have microphones and just a few people inside and we complain about that. Picture 30 to 50,000 people, men, women, and children, no microphones outside. These people probably had to strain to hear Ezra. They had to work to hear him. Men, women, older children. A mental, physical exertion here to remain attentive to the Word of God. Man, we we should learn from that. We we exert ourselves in so many things in in this life. You exert yourself at school to, to pass a test or to get a degree. We exert ourselves on the job. Exert yourself in sports. Exert yourself in the home. And yet yet many people, when when it comes to the Word of God, there's very little, if any, exertion. Very little effort on an individual basis to read and understand the Bible. Very little effort in a service to be attentive when the Bible's preached. Man, a lot of people, a lot of people when it comes to the Bible are just so passive. And I know that used to be me. So passive. Read it occasionally if I have an extra five minutes. Sit in a service and just let the sermon kind of wash over me like a song. Lullaby and goodnight. Maybe I'll pick something up. Maybe I won't. These people here, they were active 
hearers of God's word. Active hearers. Do you know when somebody preaches? I can tell when people are hungry and when they're not. I can tell it. I can see it on faces. I can see it in the way people sit. I can, I can, I can see it. I can tell. And when you're in a hungry crowd, it's almost like they pull it out of you. And when you are in a crowd that's sleepy, you have to force it to come out. You can tell. These people were active listeners, active hearers, attentive to Ezra, just pulling it out of him here. And man, their attentiveness to the word here, their attentiveness, this thing will spark a revival. That's the second thing the people did here concerning the word. They heard the word. They were attentive to the word. And the final thing here, they, they, they understood the word. And Ezra, he's up, he's here giving the law to these people, and he wants to make sure that they don't just hear it, and they're not just attentive to it, but they actually understand it. So, so, so what did Ezra do? Well, Ezra and a bunch of others here, they explained or they expounded the scriptures to the people. Verse 4 says Ezra stood on a wooden platform. He was elevated, like on this stage right here, only probably much higher. The Hebrew word uh, for, for platform there is actually, could actually be translated as tower. <laughs> and listen, for 30 to 50,000 people, uh, Ezra probably needed a tower <laughs> so they could all see him and potentially hear him. The early reformers, men like Luther, Calvin, Zwingli, they all preached from an elevated pulpit. I have a picture of Calvin's pulpit in Geneva. Put that up. There's his pulpit. And you can see it's probably a good maybe 10 feet off the ground there. It's where Calvin preached in, in Geneva. My seminary, where I went, my seminary actually had a Reformation-style elevated pulpit. Not that fancy, uh, but it was probably 10 feet high. And uh, in my preaching class, every time I had to go up there to preach, my professor would look at me and say, time to climb Mount Sinai. <laughs> As if it wasn't scary enough. <laughs> oh, man. And, and, and listen, why did the reformers preach from an elevated height? Listen, it wasn't just so people would see them. That wasn't it. Do you know what? That elevated pulpit was a statement about the importance of God's Word. In the Roman Catholic churches at the time, the Word didn't play a big role at all. A very low view of Scripture. If Scripture was in the service at all, it was typically in the service in Latin, and most people couldn't understand it. And with the elevated pulpits, the Reformers were saying that the Word of God was absolutely critical. They were saying with those pulpits that the Word of God was the ultimate authority for God's people, and all God's people should be under the Word and hearing the Word regularly, a very high view of Scripture. Verse 4 here says that 
Ezra is now standing up on a platform. And standing beside Ezra on this platform were 13 men, six on his right hand, seven on his left hand. Just picture up on this big tower, all these men up there. The men, they may have helped Ezra read through the day, or they were maybe there just to add weight to what Ezra was doing, reading the law of God. When Ezra first opened the scroll, verse 5 says, all the people stood in reverence to the Word of God. It's very possible that these people kept standing the entire time Ezra read. Verse 6 says that when Ezra first opened the scroll, people stood up. Well, Ezra then blessed the Lord. An opening prayer of, of some sort like we, like we do here. Almost every time before I read the Scripture and, and I preach, I will pause to pray. The Reformers called that the prayer of illumination. Asking God who wrote the, the Word to enlighten our hearts so that we might comprehend the word. Verse 6 says that the people then, after he prayed, they, they responded with, Amen, Amen, lifting up their hands and then bowing their heads with their faces to the ground. They worship God, praising God for his word. And Ezra then began to read, but he didn't just read. No, he also helped the people to understand what he just read. Verse 7 says, There were also 13 men, Levites, out in the crowd, working the crowd, as we might say. Just picture me preaching right now, and we got 13 men <laughs> kind of walking around here, working the crowd. And what did these 13 Levites do? Well, if you look at the middle of verse 7 again, they helped the people to understand the law, while the people remained in their places. They read from the book, from the law of God, clearly. And they gave the sense so that the people understood the reading. Probably worked something like this. Ezra would read a portion of the law, Ezra or another man up on the stage, and the Levites would then circulate, and they would expound, or, or they would explain that portion of the law to the people. Verse 8 says that the Levites, they, they, they read from the law clearly. So Ezra had probably already read it and then they're going through it clearly and they're giving the sense of it. It could also be translated as they read with interpretation to the people or they read paragraph by paragraph to the people. They expounded, they, they, they explained what had just been read. And you know what that's called when, when the scripture's read and then it's expounded or explained? You know what that's called? Expository preaching. Ezra was, he was an expository, expository preacher. Expository preaching, you know what it is? You just take one text of scripture, you read it, you explain it, and you Try to apply it. Ezra was an expository preacher. And, and when you do that one text after the next, like, like Ezra did there all the way through the book of the law, that's called consecutive expository preaching. One text after the next, read it, explain it, and try to apply it in order that your people might fully understand the Scriptures. That's preaching. That's preaching. Now, it's not the only kind of preaching, for sure, but that is preaching. 
Preaching is not starting with some sort of topic and then trying to slap verses to it occasionally and make people laugh. That's a lecture according to Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones. A scripture is, a, a, a sermon is taking the scripture, expounding the scripture, explain it, try to apply it to people's hearts and lives in order that people might understand or comprehend the scriptures. The early reformers were all expository preachers. They didn't want the people in their day to just hear the word. They wanted the people in their day to understand the word. So they'd preach one text after the next through different books of the Bible. They would read it, explain it, apply it to give the sense of it in order that their people might fully understand the scriptures. John Calvin, for instance, he labored week after week from his pulpit in Geneva to expound the scriptures to his people, one text after another. We have access today to 46 of his sermons on Thessalonians, 186 on Corinthians, 86 on the pastoral epistles, 159 on Job, 353 on Isaiah, and 123 on Genesis. On Easter Sunday, 1538, after preaching on a particular text, Calvin was banished from his pulpit by city authorities. And when Calvin returned to Geneva, three years later, got back in his pulpit, he picked up his exposition again on the very next text. A serious commitment to expository preaching, laboring to help his people understand the word of God. All the reformers were expository preachers. Luther, Calvin, Zwingli, Knox, Latimer, Ridley. And when people back then, in those days, when they began to read God's word, because they finally had it translated into their common language, and when they sat under the preaching of these men who helped them understand the word of God, it sparked a reformation in many, many nations. A spiritual renewal of the people of God like wildfire that spread and spread and spread all because people were hearing and understanding the word of God. That's one reason why we've made a commitment in our church to preach primarily consecutive expository sermons, just working through books of the Bible, primarily one text at a time, read it, explain it, do the best you can, try to apply it in order that hopefully we might all understand the Word of God better. And our hope is that God will use our understanding of His Word to spark revivals in our church, deeper and deeper spiritual renewals. As we live in God's Word. You don't need me to stand up here and just tell you ten minutes of stories. You don't need that. Older kids, you don't need that from me. You need me to labor to give you the Word of God. Do all I can to help you understand the Word of God. Because all through history, God has brought new life to His people through His Word. So there it is. Nehemiah just finished the rebuilding of the wall. Man, he, he now, he, he wants to renew a people. So what does he do? He calls for the book. Bring it. Bring it, Ezra. Bring it. I'll step back. I'll let you take it. I'll let you read it. That's your job, Ezra. I know that's your job. It's not my job. Take it, Ezra. Read it. Expound it. Because we need to revive this people. 
They heard it. They were attentive to it. They understood it. And man, from this point on, God will now begin to work through His Word to breathe new life into this languishing people. That's how revival works. That's what Martin Lloyd-Jones says he needs to come to the church. is a revival sparked by the Word of God. In every genuine revival in history, the Word of God has played a central role. Revivals with Josiah or Nehemiah right here. The Reformation, the Welsh revival, the Great Awakening. Any and every time God wants to breathe new life into His people, He always works through His word. And therefore, man, if you and I want a revival in our individual lives, if we want a spiritual renewal, if we want God to arouse us and wake us up, if we want God to wake up our church in deeper and deeper ways, if we want Him to stir our affection for Him and for His mission to this world, it's going to happen around the Word of God. We must also call for the book. We must hear it. We must be attentive to it. you got to work in your DNA groups you got to work. you got to work. you got to labor. you got to labor to stay in the Word. we got to labor to understand the Word, help one another understand the Word. We labor in the pulpit to understand the Word of God. In 1533, Martin Luther said this, The Word of God is the greatest, most necessary, most important thing in Christendom. But here's the thing. Here's the thing about, about this word right here. If, if, we, if we want God to breathe new life into us in and through this book right here, well, we don't just need to, to read it and hear it and, and understand it. No, we need to encounter the Jesus in it. Because here's the thing, all true life, it's, it's found in Jesus. You, you want new life? you got to go to Jesus. Jesus says in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. He, say, he says in John 11, 12, 11, 25, I am the resurrection and the life. Jesus says countless times in the Bible, I am life. And this Jesus who is life, he can also give life. He says in the book of John, I came to give life. He came to give life to other people. All true life is found in Jesus. Life is not ultimately found in a book. It's found in Jesus. But where can you encounter this Jesus? In the book. In the book, primarily. You're not primarily going to find Jesus just out under a tree by yourself. You're not going to find Jesus just... uh, um, I don't know, in some other book that was written. You're not going to find him there primarily. You'll find him in the book, and now you find him in the people of God, because that's where he dwells. It's possible you're here today, you've never truly received life from Jesus. You're still in your sins, and the Bible would say you're spiritually dead. You need life, and that's okay, because the good news is Jesus is life, and Jesus died to pay for sins and he rose again, the resurrection of the life. And if you repent or turn from your sin and you follow Christ in faith, Jesus gives you life. But where do you find this life-giving Jesus? To get that life, it's right here. If you've never read the word, do it. Start someplace easy, John or something like that. 
But listen, for those of you who are believers, you've already received life from Jesus. You need more life. All of us. We're all lethargic, lazy, languishing in some ways in our spirituality. We all need new life. And the good news is Jesus is life. And where do you find him? Right here. Right here. Right here. A revival is not just about knowing this book. A revival is about having a life-giving encounter with the Jesus of the book. That's how God sparks a revival in, in his people. The greatest need in the world today is revival in the church of God. And that revival will be found in the Jesus of the Bible. Revive us, O God, according to your word. Lord, we do thank you. We thank you, Lord God. We thank you, Father. We, apart from your word, we'd be blind. We wouldn't know you. We wouldn't know Jesus. We wouldn't know the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Your word is precious. Men and women and children have given blood to get this world passed, or to get this book passed around the world. Men, women, children have given blood to translate it into languages we can understand. William Tyndale, who translated the English Bible, a translation that still shows up in our English Bibles today, was burned at the stake. For giving us this word. This Bible is precious. Men, women, children are dying today carrying this Bible around the globe. Forgive us, Lord God, for neglecting your word. Forgive us, Lord God, for our laziness at times. Forgive us for our excuses. Forgive us, Lord God. Forgive us. And we thank you, Father, that in Jesus you do forgive us for our sins. You love us, and you've given us your Spirit to stir us up. And I ask now, Father, by your Spirit, you'd stir us up concerning the Word of God. I pray there be no more DNA groups in our church that don't talk about the Bible. Pray there be no believer in our church that doesn't carve out time to be in the Bible on a daily basis pray, Father, you'd help us. I pray when the word is preached, whether it's a good sermon or a bad sermon, that you'd help us as we sit. You'd stir us up to be attentive to the word of God as it's preached. No more jokes beside us. No more, no more texting, Father. Cause us to be attentive to your word. And Father, we would just ask, Lord God, that you work through your word. And you'd spark a revival. You renew us by your spirit. According to your word, Lord God, you'd renew us. You'd stir our affections for you and for Jesus. Father, for those who are here who don't, they don't know Jesus yet. Father, I just pray right now by the power of the Holy Spirit, you wake them up. Father, they would, they would walk away wanting to read it. Father, you just begin to open it up. Something simple like the Gospel of John or Mark. You just open it up to them. 
and help them not just to know the Bible, but to meet the Jesus in the Bible. God, I just pray you would do this. We thank you for this gift of your word. Will you work through it to renew us, we pray. In the name of Jesus, amen.